0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. We often applaud those with principles who pursue their convictions, but being too sure in something can also be dogmatic and foolhardy. This week, professor and musician Andrew Bowie, philosopher Julian Baggini, and former politician Edwina Curry debate the difficulty in being certain. Richard Cole's hosts.
2: good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our debate on the subject of being certain. Being certain, of course, something we might uh, welcome and applaud in the case of someone like Galileo or Nelson Mandela. But as Nietzsche warns, and the example perhaps of so-called Islamic State attests, certainty and conviction in the wrong places can be uh, appallingly dangerous and something to deplore. So the question is... How do we make our way through a life of action with or without convictions? Are they good things to have? Do you wish to be certain or do you wish to be something other than certain? And to help our way navigate these questions, perhaps even come up with some answers, our panel. And I should like to introduce you to Andrew Bowie, musician and lecturer, highly distinguished saxophonist, expert in the philosophy of Adorno and teaches at Royal Holloway and is the author of Adorno and the Ends of Philosophy. Edwina Curry over here, former Conservative MP, indeed former Secretary of State in the Department of Health and Social No, Socia- no,
1: no, no. I was only ever junior minister. Margaret Thatcher didn't have women cabinet ministers. <laughs> <laughs> but you were Secretary of State
2: in the Department of Health. Was that, was that Department of Health
1: and Social Security and Department of Health.
2: Co-founder of the Philosophers' Magazine, Julian Bugini, known to many of you, is the author of The Virtues of the Table and The Duck That Won the Lottery. What I'm going to do is to ask each of our panellists to set out their stalls, if you like, in a sort of four-minute chunk, one after the other. So the first person I'm going to ask is Andrew as advocate. Would you please advocate?
3: Those kind of divisions in philosophy, is X good or not, seem to me it's a very bad way to discuss anything. So the idea that we're going to come up with an answer to is conviction good or not seems to me a nonsense. The answer to virtually all those sorts of questions is sometimes yes and sometimes no. For most questions in philosophy, actually. Um, as you'll probably gathered, I'm a philosopher who doesn't think much of philosophy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so w- the point of conviction, everybody has them. Everybody ha- because you can't get by in life without them. Without, without some sort of f- baseline-orienting convictions, obviously, you know, you're not going to be able to move. And the question is the status of them, what we think of them, and how we think about them. And the basic point I want to make is one divide from, you know, another philosopher, I wouldn't bother to read because he's too obscure, but I've written a book on him so you can read that instead. I, Theodor Adorno, who was the German philosopher and died in 1969, who emigrated during the war. And he made this point about this, that, that everyone's got convictions, and that's it, part of being alive, as it were. But the crucial point is not which convictions you have, because we can endlessly argue about that and so on. But do you act on them or not? Because otherwise you you then get in this problem what's known as a regress in philosophy, that do you act on the conviction that you should be convinced and so on. Are you convinced that you should be convinced so you you don't do anything? And at some point, the point in the the theory of action is that you need what what Donna calls the additional factor. That for some reason you have a conviction and then you actually do act on it. And that seems to be that that's the crucial moment, that's the interesting moment in all this, because you know convictions are you know, to a penny, we've all got them, and so on. But which ones do we actually act on? Because we can all say we believe deeply in X, but if you don't do anything about it, that basically means nothing. yeah, And that seems to be the danger area because of course the people who have the strongest convictions are going you know, to act more readily on those convictions. Those of us with much weaker convictions, and that's kind of being a philosopher should make you like that. are always faced with the dilemma well. You know, I can always think of a reason not to do it. But when it really matters, I, in terms of you know, the meaning of things, meaning of life, actually, then what actually motivates you to do it rather than not do it? And Adorno gives an example. Sorry, are you timing this? Yeah, you've got to shut up in a minute. In a minute, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Um, 30 seconds, actually. Okay, I'm going fascinated.
1: Let, let him keep going. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I heard he like gives it. an
3: example of one of the people that, that were involved in the July plot against Hitler, whom he met, who survived, unlike the others who were strung up on piano wire. That's what takes conviction to get you through, Um, and he said there's a certain moment when something just has to stop, where there's no question, it's just this has to be done. I think we all encounter that in action. action. At a certain point, something in you pushes you, but it's not the conviction, it's something else, it's the additional factor. That's the thing I want to argue for. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew.
1: For most of history, people have had convictions and uh, been motivated by them, by, driven by them, sung songs about them, waged wars over them. The world of cynicism and of rejection of conviction is quite a recent one. And to my mind, some aspects of that are really very worrying and quite dangerous. You see this particularly in the political world, in which there are people now who stand up and say, don't vote. They don't say, form a new political party. They don't say, Work out which political party matches your particular philosophy of life. They don't say get stuck in. They don't say uh, get involved. And if there's an aspect of what the, your particular favourites do that you don't care for, with gay marriage or whatever it is, go and argue for what you believe to be right. They say don't vote. Uh, and then uh, they, they, to me, that people like that are often hypocrites because. Um, you get someone like Russell Brand saying, oh, we're all anti-capitalist, and he's worth 17 million and lives on rent. Uh, you know, the, 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 It's fairly easy to, for me to undermine somebody like that because they're such idiots. They're very obvious about it. Um, but the, it does worry me seriously that we have a world now in which uh, people are not very well up in understanding evidence. They're not very well up often in understanding risk. Large swathes of the population cheerfully admit that um, like Princess Diana they don't do maths. Um, it does help if you can add up occasionally and um, the outcome of that is they then complain about feeling outside the political system um, you know engaging with a, a in a democracy with a political system actually involves a bit of work on your part. Um, to me, it's, it's not good enough to say, oh, my parents were Labour or my parents were Conservative, so I'm going to be. That, that to me, is, is uh, the, the world of sheep. Um, what I prefer is the world of people who actually think about what uh, they believe to be right, perhaps are particularly attracted by the efforts or the works or the consequences of a, a group or a prime minister, um, and then are prepared to commit some of their own time. To me, those are the, uh, the heroes, and they make the system work. I have a feeling that the, the the sense of acceptance of authority and the sense of conviction got badly eroded really in, in during my lifetime. I was born in 1946, but there was an element during the Second World War of thinking, you know what, it's all happening again. It's happening the same way as it did in the First World War and we're not going to accept that. We are going to change, not the system, but we're going to change the people in charge. Uh, and from there onwards, there's been quite a healthy questioning of authority for a long time. That's healthy. But when it veers off into, I'm not going to get involved. I, the, the, the people like you aren't interested. You, you don't know anything like, about people like me. And, and uh, I'm going to go off and I'm not going to bother to vote. And a third of the people actually say that. To me, that's uh, the sort of dangerous situation, the sort of apathy that can bring extremism into play.
0: Um, I I think that Andrew makes the point, I think which is a critical one here, is that it's really daft to sort of like polarise these things too much. And, you know, people do tend to think when it comes to conviction, the choice is between... A kind of a absolute dogmatism or just wishy-washy agnosticism and I find this particularly irritating because I'm an atheist and so typically people are not atheists always so say oh how can you be so sure isn't that arrogant shouldn't you be agnostic blah 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 and I have to explain very carefully that um, having the conviction saying as far, I'm a convinced atheist I, I really believe there is no God isn't the same as saying dogmatically there's nothing more to be said about this I must be right I do not entertain ever being wrong and I think that's the delicate balance that we have to strive for in lots of things it's, it's So it's it's, it's actually how you hold your convictions, which is important. It's only with convictions that people get things done. You have to hold them in the right way. And and what is that right way? Well, I think the right way is sort of being able to get that delicate balancing act between just sort of shoulder shrugging, I don't know who cares, nothing's true anyway, and that excessive kind of uh, striving for certainty. And interestingly enough, I was just... um, I uh, Speaking the other day, because at another festival with Susan Neiman, the philosopher, who's written a very good book called um, "Why Grow Up," which I very much recommend. And you know, she talks about Kant. You know, Kant's idea that the the, the way out of intellectual immaturity is always thinking for yourself and so forth and she very much puts forward the view that it is part of being grown up to kind of get to that stage in politics and this is politically really important where you kind of get that delicate in-between stage between the kind of completely naive idealism that the world can be perfected and your generation going to do it over a weekend as long as you wave the white banner right <laughs> you wave the white banners and that kind of complete apathy which is ah, uh, the world is the world it's all going to head in the handcart I'll do nothing so you know the right kind of conviction is held with with a certain degree of force but again that, that provisionality that essential element of provisionality where you are always checking your right and you're always sort of you know making sure you're not just blindly accepting something and hurtling along the path just purely because that's where the momentum is taking you.
2: Just return to on that one, you Julian. Um, you talk about this delicate balancing act, about finding the sweet spot, if you like, between naive idealism on the one end, at the far end of that, and then something that's practically applicable to circumstances. How do you find that um, balancing act? if you don't get it right, is
0: it dangerous? Is it dangerous to have um, more dangerous to have convictions than not have them? Well, in a, in a way, you see, I'm not I'm not quite sure that one could sort of come up with a general rule that one is more dangerous than the other. It's going to depend on the situations. There are there are situations clearly where having too much Conviction is the source of the problem, and yeah, you know, we see this with with ISIS and forms of Islamic uh, militantism. But there are other occasions where it's precisely the sort of the absence of any conviction which leads to terrible horrors. If you think about all the you know, all the terrible things that have gone on in human history, they've involved often kind of perhaps a small number of people who've instigated it and a very large number of people who've gone along with it. And that's the kind of point where they're kind of like, yeah, they don't have enough sort of strength of conviction to think this is really worth fighting for, and they let it go. So I don't think you can in general say, uh, you know, one of these things is necessarily bad. It depends whether what's most important to do is, you know, to kind of, um, if what's most needed is, is action or whether, whether action is actually more dangerous. S-
2: situations Andrew where the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity as someone oh, you, has said you, before me you, you finally me. <laughs> said it <I've>, I think <laughs> we've all been avoided haunted yet. by <laughs> that phrase which
3: is a great poem it is it is compl- it's so situational I mean if you are going to do a historical analysis of this I mean I think I, I mean I, I I say I can't advocate everyone read Adorno but one of the things Adorno is, is good at is saying the point about the modern world is in a sense too much happens above the heads of people I you know who in this room and I bet the answer is nobody is feels really competent to judge what's going on economically at the moment, especially since two thousand and eight. And that sense then of people in Greece saying, you know, we didn't know what was happening, you know, we don't we can't feel responsible for this because you know, how come the countries turned out this way? It's something about an economic systemic problem which virtually nobody understood. Certainly economists didn't understand it. So in that situation, having convictions, you know, is, it's, it ought to be difficult because we don't know what's going on. And so th- the sense of caution rather than this, let's just push ahead because something will change seems to be catastrophic at the moment. And we need to sort of st- at the moment stand back and think you know, we really do have a massive problem about how we consume economics. People don't understand it, they're not voting in an informed way because nobody understands how economics works. That's
2: bollocks. Isn't it the case, Edwina, (laughs) that that the economics up to 2008 were dominated by people who seem to have extraordinary conviction about what they're doing, extraordinary mastery of circumstances and markets and so forth, and we saw where that led us. They led us uh, into an economic disaster the likes of which we haven't known since the century. Well,
1: I I was just going to say, actually, I'm sure the Greeks understood perfectly well because in the last six months what they've started doing, to everyone's surprise, paying their taxes and tax revenue in greece has shot up they knew perfectly well what they were doing they were they they were often in denial as i think very often people are that one's own individual actions are perhaps especially if replicated by a few million people having a very damaging effect well you always hear people saying well it was only a little you know i I was i was obeying the rules or whatever Um, and what they're doing is willfully denying or refusing to accept that the consequences of uh, group behavior can be um, really very detrimental.
2: Is that exactly what happened uh, uh, in the uh, financial sector too? This utter conviction, this utter certainty about the rightness of neoliberal laissez-faire economics led us in fact into an absolute catastrophe no, and I that's one th- of the dangers. Th- of oh, I,
1: I think it was much more and it, it it uh, started in America and was replicated in, in Britain and many other countries. Not all countries. Not all countries. Uh, it was much more the feeling that I want it therefore I can have it.
3: Yeah, uh, it, it and was it was, was in a social democratic country. Ah, where it was it, didn't it was
1: encouraged <laughs> by uh, people like Bill Clinton who otherwise I would very much admire that, you know, you want the American dream, you want to earn a house. You should have it. So the mortgage donors, the mortgage uh, creators, you will give mortgages to people whether they can afford to pay them back or not. And people would seize that opportunity. You have to be extraordinarily uh, foresighted and disciplined to be able to say, I can't afford that. We can't afford that. So we're not going to do that when everybody else is leaping into that. Uh, And you find yourself with Northern Rock offering 125% mortgages. So don't blame the donors. You also have to look at the people who say, I'm up for that. Where's the papers? I'll sign those. Uh, And we got into a kind of collective madness, it seems to me. The government was doing it. Lots of people were doing it. uh, And the correction to that has been extremely painful.
0: Yeah, but but these things don't occur in a vacuum, do they? It's not just that people are kind of silly or stupid or or feckless. They're led in certain directions and they're led to believe certain things about the economy. And to a certain extent, you do have to always have to defer a certain amount to experts, you can't. You should never defer completely, and isn't it the case that the system was set up in such a way that it l- led to these things becoming possible? And one of the reasons for that was the orthodox economics, which now everyone is sort of like you know turning their back on. In with it's incredible, it's hardly anyone sort of defending it anymore. Basically, had a model which it believed works on entirely theoretical principles, essentially. It was like on paper, this is the way it should work. You know, everything should be maximally efficient in a market. You know, behavioural economics has come along since and made the obvious point that actually the way people behave depends on questions of psychology as well as just what spreadsheets might predict that they were going to do. And in that case, it was the excessive kind of belief that because you had a model which seemed to work beautifully on paper, that that was going to be able to guide us through um, how to run economies in the future. And that's a very that's a sp- okay. I'm not going to have economists because philosophers, any discipline has its same version of this. It's where people become too convinced that the bit of knowledge they have is so clear to them that you know they, in a sense, they forget there's also all the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns sure. um, and sure. where that's unchallenged Andrew, about
1: risk. Yeah, but, sure.
2: but where that's unchallenged there's a certain body of knowledge which for one reason or another becomes irresistible, right? We've seen that happen, uh, for example ideas from uh, the markets come into the public sector, into the field of academic life for example uh, the, the BBC, all sorts of organisations as if I'm, I'm on yeah. the board of a housing association which was a right. stock transfer from a local authority we're right. now a social enterprise, Excellent. run as a business in order to do the job of providing affordable housing for people uh, who are, not, who are less well off. And one of the things that's happened in that is that the more we behave like a business, which we need to do in order to compete successfully in the world we're in, the harder it is for us to sustain the social values that we are established to serve. It's all about net present values. It's all about explaining to Savills the value of our assets, the value of our rents, the value of our tenancies, and so on. And less and less easy to put a number on that, which will work with accountants in a culture in which numbers are all important, which will give an account of why those social goods are important and valuable and need to be secured.
0: and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
1: And the question is
2: okay. Isn't that symptomatic of that shifting frontier uh, that uh, kind of market values have so much uh, overwhelmed well, a public sector that had a more kind of holistic human value at its the, heart?
1: The, the conviction that I hear behind that is that somehow the public sector does everything better. And there's so much evidence that that just isn't the case. The public sector does a lot of things very well. Nobody's saying that. You're wasting your time. And a lot of of activity, a lot of services need to be provided out of taxation. Uh, A lot of services need to be free at the point of of use, like uh, health service. Some need uh, as close as possible to a market price, like rents. Uh, and uh, there, there's no perfection about any of this And a lot of these boundaries uh, shift and are tested in different ways all the time um, I, I, can, I can give you the, oppo- the opposite example if you like In the borough where I live in High Peak There's 4,000 council houses uh, You go door knocking, you know which ones are the council houses Because they're the ones that are in poor repair Because the council can't afford to do anything about them And one of the reasons the council can't afford to do anything about them is they've got £83 million of historic debt. And when when interest rates go up, this is going to cause them real, real, real grief. The the best way to ensure that the tenants get decent housing and that uh, the the council has enough money in future to do all the other things that matter will be to hand over that property. To a housing association. I would that's say, going to have to be the
2: answer. I would say one of the reasons why what well, formal council houses don't look like that in my borough is because we've been able to go to the markets
0: and raise 85 million quid. Yeah, that's it.
2: right. But there's more to say than that. <laughs> Julian, sorry. Well, I just want
0: to make a very brief point. <laughs> it's slightly sort of amusing in a way that having sort of opened up, I thought we were all kind of in agreement that uh, you know we must not make this silly mistake of thinking the choice is between absolute certainty and kind of shoulder shrugging scepticism. In the same way here, the debate seems to be um, somewhat stuck between the choice that either we're saying everything, people think that either everything should be privatised or the other people are saying that everything's better in the public sector. And I think it's true, as both people said, very few people actually believe those extreme claims. It's about getting the right kind of balance and I think a lot of people on the social democratic sort of your left, what their view is simply that the balance has gone far too far in the side of privatisation. They're not saying that everything would be better off in public in public hands and to be fair to Edwina and her party as well, um, the, the, probably the majority of Conservatives don't think that everything would be better in private that's hands right. either. That's
1: right. Uh, well, that's, that there is a balance and the balance will vary according to the the mood of the electorate uh the the possibility i mean at the moment borrowing levels are very high and one reason why that's a possibility is because interest rates are very low i worry about what's going to happen in public and private organizations when interest rates start to rise as inevitably i think they must and they're all going to find themselves very stuck indeed handing over money uh, to interest Uh, that they would like to spend on other things.
2: I need to move us on so we get to just our second point, which is does bringing change in the world require conviction? I'm going to start with you, Edwina, because you're a person who's been at the sharp end of that, a politician effective change uh, at a governmental level and uh, throughout um, uh, the country and so on. Do you need conviction in order to bring about effective, lasting, meaningful change?
1: I think it helps because the way the world works, you're going to have change anyway. And it may be undesirable change unless you've got the the, the, the change driven by somebody or a a group of people who find um, the the opportunity to present it. The, The obvious example is Margaret Thatcher. Uh, for decades in the United Kingdom, the country had been stagnating with high, very high inflation, the supply side was sclerotic, um, the unions were very much in charge, not always operating in their members' interests. Uh, and uh, she came to power saying, we have to do something about this. Uh, Margaret was a very determined personality. No. Very, very strong person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she believed in conviction, she said, The word conviction politician comes from uh, an interview she gave before she was elected uh, as Prime Minister where she said, "I, I, I, I wouldn't have time to have arguments in my cabinet Um, we have to have conviction to... to, to, In other words, she was not going to rule over some kind of concessionary coalition. They they were either with her or against her. And um, that's the way that she governed. But (laughs) it worked, and everybody knew exactly what she was after, and people voted for it.
2: Would you say that model, Andrew, of Margaret Thatcher as a conviction politician going into Cabinet already, having made up her mind, do you think that's a model that worked?
3: (laughs) It worked for Hitler as well, so yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: She didn't shoot her
3: opponents. I'm not saying they're the same, but it works for any effective politician. It worked for Ackley. I mean, he gave us a National Health Service. I think that's rather more valuable than what we got from Thatcher. Um, So I I think it's absolutely the case that unless you've got the strong conviction you shouldn't be in politics. The question is whether the system then allows for sufficient checks on that conviction that you don't end up destroying large parts of the country by closing down the whole of uh, manufacturing industry, trying to run a service economy and a finance economy. And we've seen where that's leading now. Um, we're you know, heading down into disaster
0: at the moment. We're not. <laughs> Bollocks. Well, well, I mean, I think. I mean, when it comes to convictions in politics. I think it's getting having convictions in the right place. And I think it's most useful to have your convictions about ends rather than means. And I think that's it's very important you know what you're striving for. Where you have to be more careful is in first of all making a, any assumptions about which means are best things for achieving those ends. And I think that's something sort of Labour went through under, under the Blair years. And it's very fashionable to you know, dislike Blair these days, to understate it. But to, to be completely fair to him, what he did there was he took a party which had basically was very wedded to certain mechanisms for achieving the kind of social justice they wanted. And they hadn't questioned them, they hadn't seen that some of them didn't work. And the Blair years, they, Labour was prepared to look again at those things and think again. And they didn't get everything right but they, they certainly sort of got some things right. So I, I think it's that question of your, your conviction has to really start from what it is you know you want to achieve and you, you have to keep an open mind about the means. What did you make of Blair feeling the hand of history
2: upon him when he re- acquired some convictions about what uh, Britain should do intervening on the world stage uh, when it came to conflict with the Middle East?
0: Well, that's a very good question because I think the other point about conviction is that people often talk about conviction, the, uh, they talk about gut, the gut, don't they? And I think that's, that's kind of wrong. The idea that convictions all come from the gut is a profound mistake. The best convictions come when you've actually thought it through really carefully. Now the gut's important in the sense that sometimes there are situations where you kind of don't have all the information in and you need, need a little bit of intuition. Also of course the gut's important or the heart's important because of you know what your fundamental motivation is. But you know, to, in order to really act on the conviction and be persuaded it's the right thing, you really have to have thought it through. And I think in, in Blair, in, in that case, having stood up for him before, on this one I think was too willing to trust What he felt about the situation, and that's always a bit dangerous, I think.
2: Is what he felt the additional factor that you were talking about, Andrew?
0: I think
3: it probably is, and that's the problem with the additional factors. What pushes you into doing something is not rational in any straightforward sense. But at the same time, it can be the, the great thing, because you can have precisely worked out deep convictions, but not act on them. And th- that moment of when you take the risk, when you think, yeah, precisely, you're never going to know. That's the crucial th- baseline assumption. You're never going to know the consequences of what you do. You can only know the likely consequences. You can do what you can to figure this out, and that's what they certainly did wrong in Iraq. They had no post-invasion plan, and so on and so forth. The people that will be effective will be the people who have the additional factor that's something that something will actually push them when they've thought it through. And at some point, you know, that's the way it is, I
0: can't see. But the way you put it is important. Push them forward once they've thought it through, not push them forward before they finish thinking it through.
3: That seems to be the disaster.
0: Do you
2: think that Margaret Thatcher, that additional factor in her, was something which had fully mastered the brief, as it were, Edwina? Or do you think Margaret Thatcher, her conviction was a sort of uh, written into character, if I can put it that way, it was about who she was rather than what she thought?
1: Oh, goodness. Um... I'm her. not sure there's an easy answer to that, but I, I, I would suggest that she was very good indeed at knowing what the um, what, what the end objective was. She had figured out where she wanted to get to. Politically? It, but yes, that, that she wanted uh, um, a much more free market economy, much more open, much more trade. That's why she was pro-Europe. Oh, yes, you know, <laughs> single market act. Um, and that um, she didn't want any part of the country held up to ransom By a a monopoly controller, which is the way she saw the unions. So, so for her, it had to be um, everybody involved, and um, she wasn't. She didn't. Well, she abolished the unions at GCHQ, but she that would have been too big a job. But what she did, in terms of testing out whether this would work, was to do it a bit at a time which had those of us on the backbenchers screaming with frustration. You know, a little bit of trade union reform, a little bit of trade union reform. And each time it would be perfectly reasonable, like there had to be a secret ballot, there had to be a postal ballot, that kind of thing, until she bit at a time actually destroyed all their legal
2: privileges. So conviction was tempered by pragmatism, as yeah. indeed it must be in any effective politician. You philosophers in your ivory towers. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I'm in my shed. <laughs> <philosopher>. <laughs> in your ivory sheds, whatever it may be. be. But cherished. it is a very <laughs> interesting point that really makes, isn't it? Is that a conviction, I mean, you think of Margaret Thatcher as the absolute archetype of a conviction politician, capital C, capital P, in our experience. And yet, as a politician, the experience of that is one of realpolitik ultimately mm. isn't it it's about temporary yeah. conviction to the pragmatic realities of the world you're in if you can find a question
1: the difference in there which is that um elected politicians spend time on doorsteps if they are too busy as prime minister you've got 600 people spending time on doorsteps you knock on doors and people talk to you that's that was. Blair's gut instinct, I suspect, that what was coming back from the doorsteps was a feeling that, uh, of the, the aspiration and so on that wasn't being met by traditional socialism. And he was trying to find a way to defend him uh, of expressing it and getting it uh, into the system.
0: Well, yeah, but following what you said, Richard, though, I think it's, it's, it's a good point that you're introducing really, because the, again, there's a contrast often made between you know, conviction and pragmatism. You, you sort of noted that that seems like a somewhat surprising combination. And I think we've got to challenge that. I mean, the idea that principles and pragmatism are in opposition, I think, is one of the great sort of mythologies or uh, false mythologies of politics. I think that if you if, if you are principle, but if you're acting on principles, if you really believe about those principles, you obviously have to attend very carefully to the pragmatics about how to make it work. You're not serving your principles or your convictions very well at all if you rush in and do something. And we encounter it's very difficult. Because psychologically, it's difficult. It's like in personal life as well. It's like you know, it, it just take get, getting out of the politics for example and going to deeply personal you see someone who you love who's going through a great difficulty or problem in their life you you want to do something you have that kind of conviction if you like that you know uh, they, they should be helped and everything but often you can't do anything and sometimes if you try too hard you get things wrong. Should we abandon our convictions? If so, how? And I'm glad you
2: bring up the example of Tony Blair, because the making of Tony Blair was precisely the abandonment of a conviction, the abandonment of Clause 4, that fundamental tenet, which was um, uh, an absolute symbol of the Labour movement, which Tony Blair abandoned in order to create new Labour. Isn't that precisely an example of that, the abandonment of conviction in order to achieve some pragmatic change?
0: Well, no, because I think that's a good example of what I was talking about earlier. They abandoned the conviction that a particular means was the right way to achieve the end thereafter. So I think that that was the kind of thing they abandoned. I don't think we should abandon convictions, but I think we should get into the habit of questioning them very carefully. In a sense, the more you're convinced about something, the more it makes sense to actually stand back and go, hang on, am I, am I, am I really right about that? And I think it's one of the problems we have. Um, it's been well observed in yeah, that book, the, um, the Filter Bubble, isn't it called, where, you know, with the internet age, etc you know, which is obviously corrupting, rotting all our brains, no it isn't, I don't believe that. But you know, there is this sense which is much easier now to hang around like-minded people in cyberspace and everything and not expose yourself to different views. Do you want me to stop? I just just want to say something, which is at the moment in the Church of England, we're having what are called
2: facilitated conversations, Mm. which is an Anglican martial art, basically, around the thorny issue of human sexuality. And I've just spent three days in conference in a room full of people who I'm utterly convinced of the rightness of equality in marriage. They're utterly convinced of the wrongness of it. We have to find a way of having a conversation without killing each other. But what happens in that is the way that means you have to dance around your sense of your passionately held convictions. Look at them in a new way, find a new angle, a new configuration. Try to find, not wiggle room exactly, because you're not um, abandoning them. But what you are doing is trying to find a way of aligning them differently in order to achieve a greater good, the unity of your project. Maybe
1: you should ask the female Archbishop of Canterbury.
0: I'm looking forward to meeting her. <laughs> <laughs> Were but you thinking of a career change, Edwina? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, again, just following, I mean, I think psychology is a resource that philosophers underuse, and there's very interesting findings in psychology, that when you get people around a table or in a group who share a similar conviction, Right. If they then sort of deliberate about it or discuss it or debate it, which you would have thought would be great. What happens is that the center of gravity in a group shifts to a more extreme position. And this is found again and again. So it's not like everyone in the kind of thing you're talking about, people move more towards the center when you've got different views. When you've got people of the same fundamental view, because you take the granted you have in common, the more extreme position comes in. So it's very, very important, I think, to expose yourself deliberately of views which are which are not your own, Edwin, like this, I abandoned my conviction that you know state-controlled productive industries were a
3: good idea. Um, I found it quite painful, in the, sometime in the 60s, and suddenly started to realise that productive industries clearly benefited from competitive capitalism. Um, you abandon, you know, when the facts change, you change your mind. Whoever who hasn't said that, you know, yes. um, the famous quotation. When you, you realise that you've been misinformed, that you've, you've had a, a day fixed about something.
2: But what did that involve, Andrew? I mean, did it involve, what did it involve trading in? What did you feel you had to surrender in order to allow that change to happen?
3: Not a lot. If, I think but if, you'd if you,
2: invested in a conviction. Yeah. It requires some sort of personal investment, doesn't it?
3: Well, I don't know. Investing in, in things that you think to be true doesn't have to be personal. Just, you know, there is a degree of objectivity about it, where you think you know, which one should be obliged to try and justify. I mean, one of my great beliefs in philosophy is precisely that. Um, you know, justification is, is the bottom line in so much of this, and it's something which has to go on forever. I mean, there isn't a final justification for anything, but you, you get degrees of justification, and when you realise that that can't be justified anymore, at that point you give it up.
0: Actually, it's, Richard, your question I think raises a very important point, which is you know the way you put it. So often our convictions we, we see them as being tied up with our identity. And I think that's yeah. a real problem. That's yeah. why I guess it's hard to give them up. I think, you know, part and again part of like trying to have a bit of intellectual maturity is to try and recognise the fact that, you know, we, we are flexible and whatever adaptable enough that, you know, we can actually change or certainly give up convictions without threatening our identity. And in fact, you know, we should play. if you want to have anything at the heart of our identity, it should be, we are the kind, I like, am the kind of person who's prepared to yeah, uh, yeah. Follow, question my convictions. That's the most useful one on that point of view. In your
2: case, Edwina, you were very much ahead of the curve with majority opinion in the Conservative Party over um, equality for gay people, over marriage equality. I mean, that's been an interesting experience for you, feeling the sense of the mood of the party changing changing to the point where all of a sudden it becomes official policy, rather than something that's kind of kicked into the long grass or not.
1: Yeah, for me, it was a, it's a continuum because I grew up in a world in which it was legal to discriminate not just against gays and against blacks, but against women. And it was a world that had only recently happened if you discriminated against Jews. Uh, and so I, I, when I left university in 1969, there was no equal pay. The company I joined did really well. It was really keen to have women. had 55 graduates that year, two women, which was much better than most other companies. It wouldn't take women graduates at all. So I grew up in a world in which discrimination was uh, a, a serious bar to anybody being able to achieve their, their potential. And it just seemed to me wrong. And the the discrimination against gays just seemed to me almost the last version of this, and I was more than happy to get engaged. On the basis, it wasn't gay rights, as was the speech I made, it was was equal rights. Equal rights benefits us all. Equal rights means society, everybody in society is free to to, uh, make their uh, contribution.
2: Elephant in the discourse. Mm. What were you doing in the Conservative
1: Party? (laughs) Uh, Because I'm uh, fiscally conservative. I believe in balanced budgets. I believe in light, Uh, Government being very light-handed, in in other words, that most of the time, for most of the things, most people can do it by themselves perfectly well. Uh, Government's job is, apart from obviously things like security and internal security and so on, government's job should be to set some standards and to monitor them, ensure that they are uh, maintained. So I'm a believer in regulation. and i run services like that.
2: And that your belief in equal rights was in no way inconsistent with a full-hearted no, belief in... A passionate
1: in believer in freedom. People should be free, by and large, to do whatever they want, with whomever they want, in whatever physical, as long as they don't upset too many people and don't cause too much, you know, what was Mrs. Patrick Campbell said, as long as they get, don't go out and frighten the horses.
2: Shoot down freedom for us,
0: Julian. Perhaps there's a conviction there which needs questioning you've got there, which is that you, that you thought there was something odd about Edwina holding the view she did on equal rights and being a member of the Conservative Party. I think that, you know, I think that, to be honest, though, so often people do that. People often have a very narrow view of what their opponents are like, and they accept diversity amongst themselves. They can accept that they belong to a broad church, but they kind of think, oh, you lot all believe that. Um, the Conservative Party is famously a broad church. Uh, that's how it's been um, described over the years and you find all sorts of interesting characters in it.
1: We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which is brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Which side of the debate did you fall on? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times.